The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall at The Spectator. Today I'm joined by Seth Dillon, the owner and CEO of Babylon B, who are currently enjoying a lockout from Twitter over a joke. And Babylon B are American political satire website and uh, group. So Seth, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. What's going on? What, what can you tell me about this uh, lockout? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... Weird situation here where we, uh, we're being required to delete a joke in order to stay on the platform, or at least be able to continue to tweet on the platform. Our account is still live. It's, you can go visit it on Twitter, but you, we just can't tweet anymore until we delete this tweet that they want us to get rid of. And what happened, I mean, the backstory is just there was this report that came out in USA Today uh, that named Rachel Levine as one of their picks for Women of the Year. Um, and Rachel Levine is this transgender official in the health department. And, uh, and we did a joke, a take on that, where we, we named Rachel Levine as our pick for Man of the Year, kind of disputing this idea that Rachel Levine is actually a woman. Um, and it was a parody, a, a satirical take on that, and uh, it ran afoul of their hateful conduct policy. So they, con- they consider this a, a case of misgendering. It's hateful conduct, not allowed on their platform. In my view, it's like, well, if you don't like this joke, uh, fine, you can delete it yourself. But don't force me to delete it and acknowledge that I engaged in hateful conduct when I don't think that I did. You know, in my opinion, it's misgendering somebody when you call uh, someone who's biologically male a woman. I think that's misgendering. Uh, But they think it's misgendering the other way around. So, uh, you know, having those disagreements, fine. Twitter can have their policies. But don't make us delete the tweet and, and admit that we engaged in hateful conduct. We've refused to do that. And that leaves us in this kind of stalemate situation where we're locked out of our account. We can't tweet. And they seem to be perfectly happy with that. Yeah, it seems like this, of all, you know, all the uh, hundreds of thousands of jokes, perhaps, that are made on Twitter every day, you've hit one, this transgender issue. This is the highest ranking U.S. official ever in the history of America who is transgender. And so you you've seem to have hit the, the sensitive sweet spot for people of, I suppose, a different ideology to yourself. Well, it seems from the outside that America is very split at the moment. And and for one side, this is the sweet spot. Do you think that's fair? Well, it's it's certainly one of the hot button issues right now. You know, there's, and and I don't know how this is playing out around the world, but here, you know, we have in, in sports, college sports, professional sports, you start having these transgender athletes who are male athletes. They're male athletes. Their sex is male but they're competing in women's sports and they're dominating women's sports. Uh, Leah Thomas is an example of this. Leah Thomas is transgender, winning all these races, setting world records, weightlifters, you know, that you got all this stuff happening where it's a conversation right now that's being had and, and there's a lot of people who are pushing back against it and saying, look, this isn't fair, this isn't right. But, you know, we're also getting into this conversation of language and pronoun usage and whether you're misgendering or dead naming and there's a lot of strict enforcement that's being done trying to compel your speech so that you say what you're supposed to say and if you don't say it uh, or you refuse to say it or you say the wrong thing you know you get punished for it Um, so instead of having a debate we have this situation where these companies that have all this power you know they have all this 
control over who's allowed on their platforms and who's allowed to speak, they're trying to settle the debate by just simply silencing one side of the debate and making them shut up. And that's, you know, that's kind of an unhealthy spot to be in as a society. Well, Babylon B, you've, you've had various accusations, I guess, before, and keep, obviously you're a, a comedy satire site, but you've been accused of uh, spreading misinformation and the starch. Again, to, if you were to judge all comedy, all of its misinformation, because it's a joke, it's not technically true. But this is a little bit different because some people might argue, actually, you're saying something that is technically true. So they can't get you with a fact check here because you're saying she is a biological man. <laughs> And so instead of sort of misinformation fact-checking, you, you're, you're locked out. And, and this seems different because it's not a shadow ban. It's not a censoring. Well, I guess it's a type of censoring. But by, by uh, for example, in, over here, there's a, a British, uh, an Irish comedian, actually, called Graham Linehan. He's the man behind Father Ted and uh, various huge comedy shows over here. And he got banned from Twitter for the tweet, Men Aren't Women Though. And so it's the same category, it's the same hot button issue. So why is it that for Babylon B, it's, it's this new approach? What, what's going on at Twitter that, 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 that they need to take you down in this way? Like, why is it so important to them? Well, I do think it's a new approach. I think, you know, you mentioned the misinformation thing. So we've dealt with that quite a bit where our jokes, all of a sudden our jokes had a, a, had a truth rating, right? Where they were either true or false. And of course, these are fabricated stories. Satire, the way the political satire works is you like, you exaggerate the truth. You make up a story that is hyperbolic and it, it just, it goes, it goes a step beyond the truth in the direction the truth is pointing usually, you know, like you're trying to do a parody. And so, you know, the details of the story are always going to be false. But the underlying point that you're making is oftentimes true. And I think that's the case in, in this story. You know, it's you're advancing a truth. We, we, we describe what we're doing as we're, we're speaking truth to culture. We're just doing it using humor and irony and, ex, and exaggeration. So you can definitely fact check the details of a story that's fabricated like ours and say this is false. Yes, but that's missing the point. Of course, it's false. It's a joke. You don't stand up in a comedy show and fact check the comedian and say, hey, that's not funny. It's false. You know, it's, it's a joke, but there is underlying truth to it. And that's where it gets kind of confusing. It's like, now, wait a minute. Um, you know, we object to being fact-checked and, and we object to people calling our stuff misinformation. But now we're standing by this one joke saying this is the truth. Well, of course, you know, the, the point of this joke, did we really name Rachel Levine Man of the Year? No, the Babylon Bee doesn't name anybody Man of the Year. That's not something that we do. We're a satire site. Uh, it's a joke. But Rachel Levine is, in fact, a man in our view. Uh, and I think that's an objective, uh, an objective statement that can be fact-checked affirmatively. So there is truth to the joke. Um, there is often truth to, to satirical jokes. And I think that's just the problem when we talk about the Babylon Bee and why we are facing you know, these kinds of things is because there are popular narratives, popular views, ideology, narratives that are being advanced from the top down, from our government, from our politicians, from media and entertainment and our education system. Coming from the top down, these progressive ideas, this narrative that they want to force on everybody and get everybody to comply with and affirm, and we poke holes in that, you know? We consider that punching up, we consider that speaking truth to power, we consider it speaking truth to culture by trying to poke holes in that popular narrative. Other comedians are out there trying to promote the popular narrative, and they're, and they're going for like applause and affirmation rather than amusement. They're not trying to make people laugh. They're trying to make people agree with them and, and agree that this narrative is the one true narrative that we should all be, you know, hailing and, and cheering on. 
and I don't think that's the job of the comedian. The job of the comedian is to push back on that stuff. And I think that's why we're under attack is because we're doing that effectively. Do you, do you think those other comedians you're referring to, and I'd be curious to know who you spe specifically mean, are, are they actually affirming it or is America so split now that there are two completely different worldviews? And for comedy to work, you need to have a sh agreed upon underlying truth, underlying worldview to make fun of. Are these other comedians you're referring to, are they actually affirming that stuff or do they just have such a different outlook that they genuinely find something that you don't find funny, they find it funny. <laughs> well, there's definitely an issue where you have, you know, you have two different views of the world. Well, not just two, but let's keep it simple. You know, you've got the left and the right, right? Um, there's a lot of people in between, so I don't want to oversimplify. But just for the sake of argument, you know, you've got people on the left, you've got people on the right. They see the world very differently. Up is down for one side, black is white for the other. They disagree on a lot of things. And that does play into comedy. You really shouldn't have like right-wing comedians and left-wing comedians. Comedians should be making fun of whatever deserves to be made fun of. And in our view, you know, and this is why we often make fun of our own side, you know, I think it's, I think it's important that we like hold our, our own side to account and criticize ourselves when we're engaged in hypocrisy or when we're, when we're advancing bad ideas, harmful ideas, um, things that don't make sense, things that are incoherent or hypocritical. They're deserving of mockery and ridicule and comedians should be making fun of their own side when that's when that's necessary. I do think there's some people on the left who do that. I think Bill Maher is a good example of that. Bill Maher is often holding his own side to account for, um, you know, cancel culture, wokeness, these attacks on comedy and free speech. You know, he pushes on that back on that pretty hard, even though he agrees with the left on a lot of the on a, on a lot of their core issues. Um, and I certainly don't see eye to eye with him on most things. But I, you know, we, you have this situation where there are both sides trying to speak their truth and advance their truth. I think when when, we're, when I'm talking specifically about promoting the popular narrative, you know, when I think of our late night TV shows, you know, like late shows, evening shows, Saturday Night Live, stuff like that, the jokes that these guys are making, they're not really attached to reality. They're attached to a narrative. They're riding on the back of a of a false narrative, and they're promoting that narrative uh, very aggressively. And you often hear in their in their like their stand up routines that they're like they're basically preaching. They're preaching to the choir. The the audience loves it. They're standing up and they're clapping and they're applauding. There's not a lot of laughing happening. It's like they're not even making jokes anymore. It's it's a really strange time to be in when when you have comedians who are so dedicated to advancing the narrative that it becomes less about making people laugh and more about getting their applause. And so I've I've been seeing that a lot. And I think that comedians who push back on this kind of stuff, Dave Chappelle would be a good good example. Some of Joe Rogan's comments, you know, like people who are who are getting canceled over here are challenging the popular narrative, making jokes they're not supposed to be making. I think that's the job of the comedian and it's the job that we're trying to do. And I think it's the reason that we're facing some attacks. Uh, I mean, could your detractors not say that you were playing to your own crowd? And um, what's the philosophy at Babylon B? Is the priority the joke? Do you, do you guys, um, are you, you've been described and I don't, I'd rather you described your own team and, and, and the Babylon Bee yourself, but you're described as a Christian conservative satire group. Uh, do you have your yeah. own agenda or is the agenda just to make people laugh? Because that should be the agenda. Or do you have yeah. a, a political motive yourselves? Well, so a couple of parts there. I mean, the first thing that a, that a humorist or a comedian should be thinking of when they're writing a joke is, is it funny? That's the first thing. Is it funny? And kind of like a second question to that is, you know, in evaluating whether or not it's funny is to ask, well, is it true? Because if it's not true, it's not going to be funny. 
you know, there's this idea we, we we're criticized so heavily sometimes that some of our jokes are believable or that our jokes end up coming true. And I don't think that's a really a very good criticism because, you know, the saying that there's a grain of truth in every joke or it's funny because it's true. There's a reason that those are, are common sayings. They're common idioms. You know, these are these are uh, phrases that reflect the reality that a joke needs to be closely tethered to the truth in order to go through it, in order to make a point. There has to be an underlying truth to the point that you're making. So if you divorce your joke so far from reality that nobody could possibly believe it was true, then nobody's going to laugh at it. Nobody's going to think that it's funny. So um, I think you have to ask yourself, is it funny? But then second to that, well, is it true? It's, it's only going to be funny if it's true. So, okay, if, if, we're, if we're telling a joke that's rooted in a truth and not just a, a narrative that we want to advance, that's a joke worth telling. And that's really how, how we come at it in terms of you know, trying to entertain people. We do want to make people think, though. You know, there's, there's, it's kind of a two-pronged approach where you want to make people laugh, but you also want to make them think. I think that the satirist has an important role to play in society in terms of ridiculing bad ideas ridiculing dangerous ideas before they take root and before they become policy and start affecting people and harming people in society. You know, that mission, it's not really a political mission in the sense that it's all Democrat ideas are bad and need to be ridiculed. Republican ideas are good. Let's advance Republican ideas and tear down Democrat ideas. Uh, It's not like that. It's more like which ideas are harmful, which ideas are hypocritical, and that can be on both sides. And so that's where we end up, we do end up going after both sides Obviously, because we're, we ourselves are primarily on our staff, are, are conservatives and Christians, we have our own worldview, but we're not trying to shove that worldview down your throat. We're just simply writing comedy from our own worldview and trying to, to the best of our ability, say, is this true and funny? Mm-hmm. So you're now, you're in this standoff with Twitter. How, how does it end? You're not going to back down, it sounds like. What, what's going on behind the scenes? Are you, are you in conversation with them? We're not. Uh, we did submit an appeal. So when they told us that we had to delete this tweet and it, and it says in the, in the red language above the delete button, it says, by deleting this tweet, you acknowledge that you engaged in hateful conduct. That's the reason that we're kind of taking a stand and saying, you know, we can't in good conscience click that and, and acknowledge that because we don't agree that we engaged in hateful conduct. For one thing, I don't think it's hateful to tell the truth. You know, I don't think that I don't think that truth telling is hate speech. It can't be hate speech, you know. And, and so this idea that that the problem is, you know, they baked their ideology into their terms of service so that if you disagree with their ideology, you're automatically engaging in hateful conduct. Well, we just simply disagree that that constitutes hateful conduct. And we think that their ideology, uh, they're trying to get us to conform even as they say in their terms of service that they want a platform for free expression that has a diverse range of perspectives uh, represented there. Um, that what they give with one hand, they take back with the other in having all these rules about what you can and can't say, and you've got to agree and conform with their ideology in order to stay there. So they don't really want a platform for free expression. I think I lost track of the question, though. What was, oh, the question was, have we, have we talked with them and what's going on and where does it go from here? We haven't had a conversation with them. We did appeal it. And they denied our appeal. And so what that means is something else is going to have to give. I mean, if we're not going to delete the tweet, we will never tweet again unless something changes. If there's a policy change at Twitter, if Elon Musk takes control and decides to free the bee, you know, maybe Congress will pass some law that will that will change things. It could be a while before we get out of Twitter jail. How deep rooted are these problems? Is it the ideology of those who work at Twitter or are there legal issues? Is there a more deep-rooted legal 
fight that you have to take on in, in, in the States? Great question. I think it's two things. I mean, yeah, there's obviously a strong position that this company takes and that most of its staff take on these issues. You know, people on the left here in, in the States in particular, they do, they do not want free speech platforms. They really don't. Whatever lip service they may give to that, they don't. They want to crack down on COVID misinformation. They want to crack down on just misinformation in general. Anything that might impact an election that could harm them is misinformation. The Hunter Biden laptop story is misinformation. Get rid of it. We don't like it. Misinformation just means, you know, stories that we don't like, that we don't want you to read. And then they also do this with hate speech. You know, any, any opinion that they don't like is automatically labeled hate speech and taken down. They really have no interest in a free speech platform. And they try to say that they have interest in it. There's just certain things that they don't want up there, like misinformation and hate speech. But really, those are just opinions that they don't like. So there's that problem, which is very deep rooted. It goes all the way down to the, you know, the, the majority of the employees that are on staff there have these views. Uh, and there's tons of pressure from the outside as well that they keep these platforms clean of misinformation and hate speech, which is just simply Republican or conservative viewpoints. You had this happen. So Trump got elected in 2016 here. And then by 2018, you know, Facebook, for example, was taking a tremendous amount of blame for that because they allowed so much misinformation to proliferate on their platform. That's why Trump got elected. So they were pressured from the outside to crack down on misinformation and start fact-checking everything. That's when our jokes started getting fact-checked, was in 2018, when, when Facebook is deciding they need to crack down and prevent another situation like this. The only reason Trump could have won is because Facebook let too much misinformation spread, right? You had, you had conservatives who were allowed to talk without being filtered and without being censored. And so, you know, that's really a super deep-rooted problem where it's not just within the company itself, but there's outside pressure. And then you have compounding that, the legal issues here where our laws haven't yet caught up to the conditions of, the, of our society right now where we have the town square, the public square is no longer a physical town square in the middle of the town. It's these privately owned digital platforms, these forums where people communicate online. It's where the vast majority of public discourse is taking place, not just between private citizens, but between government officials and private citizens. Unprecedented amounts of speech are happening there. This is where public discourse happens. Tens of millions of active, daily active users are on these platforms communicating with each other. So the laws haven't caught up to that yet to protect speech. What, you know, we still have these outdated laws that are basically giving these companies complete immunity to do whatever they want. And I don't think that that's a great situation and there needs to be a solution for that. So that can either come through Congress or the courts. But so you do have a legal, a legal conversation to have there as well. Well, I, I think what you're referring to is something, is, is, is a, a, the Communication Act was actually 1996, so 20 years before uh, Trump's election win. And, and there's a sort of paradox or a, a, a contradiction within uh, Section 230, which is on the one hand, these internet platforms are immune from the uh, responsibilities of a normal publisher. On the other hand, they have, uh, I think it says Section 230C, Parts 1 and Parts 2. And Parts 2 is the Samaritan, uh, the Good Samaritan Act, or Good Samaritan something or other, which says that they have the, they're obliged to monitor output and content regardless of whether the constitutional rights of the users are uh, infringed upon so that seems to me that you, you can't have both of those. You, you, it's one or the other. Either they are responsible as publishers or they're not responsible and they should 
allow all all speech um, regardless of whether they believe it to be hate speech or not is that the root of is that a, the legal root of the problem or or is that is the problem is it worse or is it not as bad as that well i mean they do they are in a situation where they're they're where they're essentially getting to have their cake and eat it too right because they get the immunity uh from liability uh as a legal benefit so they can basically moderate whatever they want to and take down whatever they want to and they're immune they're not treated as a publisher for doing that it's not considered um, you know, the, in, the, in the language in Section 230 deals with like interactive computer services, which are just like online forums and then like content providers. And they're not considered like a, a, a content provider when they engage in that activity. So they get that immunity, which was a, a good thing because it allowed the Internet to really flourish. It allowed these forums, these publer, publishers uh, or these uh, Internet uh, social networks and everything to get off the ground and actually grow and not be, you know, saddled down with all of this uh, legal trouble, you know, with people suing them for the moderation that they're engaging in and everything. It was a good thing to an extent. The issue is it's like, okay, well, they can have their cake and eat it too because, because they're, they're allowed to get this immunity for engaging in, in, uh, in all kinds of censorship. But it, it crosses the line into kind of this publisher activity where rather than just being like the newsstand that hosts all of the different, you know, publications, they're actually choosing which publications go up and, and what you can see and what you can hear. And so they're getting that, they're, they're getting that. And I think that part of the problem is that this immunity isn't conditioned on anything like political neutrality or anything like that. You know, if you, if you simply conditioned the immunity so that when, especially with large public forums, when these forums get to a certain size and they have so much reach and they are basically the de facto town square, as Elon Musk called it, you know, that's a special situation that you have there. In that situation, I think the immunity that they enjoy, let them enjoy it but condition it on politically, uh, political neutrality so that they're not engaging in politically motivated viewpoint discrimination. You really harm society, you harm culture, you harm democracy when you allow uh, platforms that are that large, that have that much control of the flow of information and the public discourse to engage in politically motivated viewpoint discrimination. So the, the problem is the, the, the law has, we didn't foresee this happening, no one could foresee this happening. It wasn't in view back in 1996 when this was passed. And so I think it needs an update. It, ne it doesn't need to be abolished. I think it needs to be either reformed uh, or we need to apply some other kind of doctrine to these platforms. And this is you know, getting a little technical, I guess, but you had Justice Thomas here, our Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, recently give some remarks on this whole issue and say that the immunity provisions of Section 230 have been interpreted very extravagantly by the lower courts. Maybe it's time for the Supreme Court to take a look at it and determine whether or not that interpretation is correct. Maybe it needs to be interpreted less extravagantly. Maybe common carrier doctrine, which is applied to you know, telecommunications companies, needs to be applied to these companies that are carrying as conduits so much of this communication. They shouldn't be allowed to discriminate, not on the basis of race, creed, sex, or political viewpoint. And so you know, that's not a huge regulatory scheme that would involve you know, the government just taking over these platforms and running them. There's plenty of precedent for common carrier doctrine being applied to large telecommunications companies and it not being a First Amendment issue where the rights of those companies are being, you know, their First Amendment rights are being abridged. These, these private companies will say, we don't want to be the speaker of your speech. We don't want to host your speech, that we have a First Amendment right to not carry your messages if we don't want to. Well, which is it? Are they the speaker or not? If they're just the conduit and they're not going to be treated as the speaker, then they should be required to host other people's speech, whether they want to or not. It's just the nature of the platform that they've built. So that's where they're having their cake and eating it too. 
and I think there are potential solutions to it. I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not a First Amendment scholar. I'm just dealing with the, you know, the cancel culture and, uh, and, uh, and censorship side of it from a business perspective and surveying the options out there and what's being discussed. And I think there are possible alternatives. Hmm. Well, you mentioned Elon Musk there. And uh, at the time of our speaking now, uh, uh, he's now the largest stakeholder, uh, shareholder rather, in uh, Twitter. And uh, yep. there's been free the bee trending online uh, as a consequence. What do you make of the Musk deal, uh, his, his takeover, and what do you think its implications are for social media and Twitter specifically going forward? Well, it's a wild situation. I did not expect Elon Musk to get involved in this whole thing, you know, but I think, I think from his perspective and, you know, some of the comments that he's made about, about this whole situation, talking about Twitter being the de facto town square, polling his audience to see if, if they think that Twitter adheres to principles of free expression, which are really necessary. He calls himself a free speech absolutist. And so, you know, from his, his perspective, when he sees all this censorship, including censorship of the president of the United States, media companies like the New York Post trying to report on the Hunter Biden laptop story, satire sites like ours, you know, getting locked out of our account because we made a joke that the powers that be didn't like. He sees that kind of stuff happening and thinks, well, you know, if Congress isn't going to do anything or if, if Twitter is not going to re- respect free expression, then maybe there's another approach. I mean, there's there's been a common thing where you have these like activist investors who will buy up a lot of stock in a company and get on the board or start to exercise some control using their influence as large shareholders to get the to steer the company in the direction that they want it to go. Uh, and he seems to have decided that it's time to do that at Twitter. And he's one of the few people in the world who has the resources to actually make it happen. I mean, the stake that he bought is still, it's a minority stake. He doesn't have control of the company yet. And it cost him billions of dollars. So it's, uh, it, clearly he's putting his money where his mouth is, though, by, by getting involved. And I welcome it. I think that you know, people with his mindset this, that really values free expression, free speech, I think people like him need to get aggressive and need to be willing to invest in the preservation of freedom and the restoration of sanity. If people who have the resources to do it actually do it, they might actually make a difference a lot faster because so many of us, you know, little guys like us, we get locked out and all we can do is scream into the void. There's nothing we can do about it. We don't have the money to buy Twitter and take it over. Musk does. It's, you, you know, you mentioned the Hunter Biden uh, laptop uh, case and, and the New York Post uh, story being censored during the election. And, 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 and I see this now with Babylon B. At some point, I, I wonder to a lot of people in denial that these things are happening or don't even know these things are happening. I certainly have a lot of friends just who they don't they live in a completely different world and they don't see this stuff going on. And I, I do wonder what it's going to take for them to think, oh, actually, maybe we've got a problem. That's even here in, in England. I, I don't know if you have a sense of that in, in the States of, of, of this great division that's happened over the last five, 10 years, maybe longer. I, I, I don't know if you have insight into, into that on, on your side of, of uh, uh, the world. I think a lot of reasonable people who have viewed it as a problem. There's so many people, though, here on the left who don't think it's a problem at all. I mean, they think it's a problem that, that the people who disagree with them are allowed to speak. You know, it's not that they have a problem with hate speech. They just hate speech. They hate speech. They hate free speech. And so that is a big problem. And getting people to wake up to that, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of middle of the road kind of reasonable people who might be more inclined to vote for a Democrat than a Republican because of social issues or whatever. You know, they're totally for same sex marriage. You know, they're 
they, 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 they're not really like super religious or conservative or anything. But, but when it comes to like clamping down on, and, and, uh, on stories that you don't like and muzzling voices that you don't want to hear, a lot of these people still love liberty. You know, one of the founding principles of our country was liberty. That was at the, that was the heart, at the heart of everything. Liberty, liberty, liberty. And we have this situation now where so many people are just completely either forgetting that or, or, or thinking that, you know, we don't need it anymore, that it's harmful or detrimental to society to have too much liberty. And so I'm hopeful. I mean, I, I, I try not to be a cynical person. Uh, I try to try to see the positives. Um, I'm hopeful that, you know, when, when things get too extreme in one direction, they do tend to swing like a pendulum back in the other direction a little bit. People start to see, ooh, maybe we went too far this way. Let's come back to kind of the reasonable middle. I'm hopeful that there will be a swing back towards the middle where people see that this is going a little bit too far. Where's that hope coming from? Is it from someone like Musk uh, and his behavior or do you, uh, is there hope because you see people on the other side actually thinking perhaps this is going too far? A little bit of both. I mean, I mentioned Bill Maher earlier. You know, he sees the problems with this stuff. The guy's a, you know, the guy's a leftist. He's not, he's not even in the middle. He's on the left solidly, but he does believe in free speech. He thinks that people on the right should still be able to talk. I think that more people like him need to be very vocal uh, they will embolden others to to stand up and say, you know, this isn't right. This isn't this isn't good. We need to have these dialogues. We need to have these discussions. I think that it's it's a shame there aren't more people in positions of real power and influence like Musk who are doing stuff like this. But look, Musk may embolden other people to step up. There's a lot of influential people that could be doing more. I think the little stand that we're taking, I'm not, I'm not going to take credit for much, but <clears throat> we are refusing to bend the knee. We're refusing to say we're going to delete this tweet. We're willing to give up our Twitter presence, which is uh, significantly impactful on our business, uh, on principle, and say, you shouldn't be silencing jokes that you don't like, especially when they're rooted in the truth. So, you know, hopefully we will encourage other, I, I remain hopeful that, that, that people will kind of stand up and band together and eventually push back on this stuff. And maybe we play a small part in that. I don't know, I could be wrong. Maybe we just die out with the rest of them. Well, I'm hopeful too. Uh, Sefton, let's, let's leave on, uh, on, uh, on a note of hope there. Thank you so much for your time and really appreciate it. And uh, we will be watching attentively to see what happens next in this great standoff. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Great dialogue. <laughs>